All right, here we go. It's happening now. I feel like I'm singing to you. This you setup. are. Yeah. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to so many damn books. My name is Christopher, and today, actually joining me in the flesh, in the person, is the one, the only, Sasha Fletcher. Sasha, thank you for joining me in the real life damn library. The first guest to this iteration, the first guest that's actually in front of me in a long time. Sasha is a poet and the author of It Is Going To Be A Good Year. And he's also the author of the new Be Here To Love Me At The End Of The World out from Melville House. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's, it's fine on the whole, I think. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, I love loved your novel. And before we get into talking much about it, I want to talk about the, the drink that you inspired me to create. There's so much cooking in your book. There is. Which is super fun and makes you hungry. And one of the first steps uh, that your main character always has is he browns butter. There's so much browned butter. You gotta brown the fucking butter, man. Like, like I'm sorry, but just, it's not, it tastes better. It makes everything more interesting. Like, do we, do we want things to be less interesting? I, no. <laughs> brown the butter. Brown the butter. So I decided to take a cue from the book and brown some butter to start off this cocktail and so i browned a stick of butter a full stick and then i just poured that into a container with an entire bottle of whiskey left it for a couple of hours and then threw it in the freezer so this is called fat washing and you can do it with any fat you want any oil you want anything that'll freeze off because the butter freezes and then you can just strain out all the solids and be left with this nutty, uh, smooth, I don't know. I love this iteration of this whiskey. It's incredible. And so I use that to make a um, an old-fashioned, which is a pretty simple, it's the, it's the drink that we all, well, all think it is. And I'm calling this the useful old-fashioned because a lot of, the, a lot of your main character is cooking to feel useful. And so, and he he has like a deep and desperate desire to be useful in a in a time and a place where he kind of feels as though he's not. Yes, and we will get to all of that wonderfulness before we talk about the book. We talk we talk about something that we bought. give you an idea of how this goes i'll talk about what i got in the mail recently from uh from a couple places that are sending me books um i have elaine shea chow's disorientation which is coming out soon it's this campus novel and it's inspired by that that white guy who published under a chinese pseudonym um and it's about like a university student who's studying a chinese poet and realizes that this very studied Chinese poet is actually a white guy who is using a pseudonym. He's a phony. 
Yeah. And like this revelation changes everything about her college experience. And of course, uh, comparisons to the secret history are, you know, part and parcel of like publishing. If, if it takes place anywhere near a campus, they're like, it's like the secret history. You know what I mean? But the, I actually think secret history mixed with the idiot might make a good sense for what this novel is. I'm really excited. And then um, Akweke Amezi's new novel, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. Such a good title. It's a title. It's a hell of a title. And they said it was inspired by their love of romance novels, so they wanted to write their own. And I haven't looked into the details much further than that because I just want to go in on what Akweke Amezi's idea of a romance novel is. Because they've been much more cerebral. They've gone. They've done so many other things. It kind of is fun to think that they're just going to try to do a normal, like, I don't know, marriage plot or love triangle. I'm not sure. Uh, so that's that's what's. I didn't really buy these things. They were sent to me, but I'm very excited to have them on my shelf. What about you? I got a tattoo today, and I I, I bought that with my money. It's all it's all wrapped up, as yeah. you can see. Wow, it's so fresh. It's so fresh. It's very fresh. I got it. I got it like six hours ago. Oh, wow. How are you yeah, feeling? I feel great. I feel vibrant and alive. I feel touched by like a divine light. Wow. I mean, that's what people yeah. say about tattoos. Yeah. Do you want to share with the listeners what you got, or is it something that it's only for you right now? It's for me right now. That's nice. All right. I'm kidding. It's, oh. God, it's, it's God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Okay. Is that... It's 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 the motto of the shadowy, ultra governmental organization Nerve, in uh, in Neon Genesis Evangelion, who are intent on, essentially bringing about, the end of humanity through the Human Instrumentality Project, removing all the barriers and people's souls so that we all join as one, so that the founder can reunite with his dead wife. And and then never be alone again. Well, it's a lovely idea. But un- unfortunately, this, this goes wrong. His own son, who's neglected his entire life, is in fact the vessel for this godlike power and uh, continually resets the world in ways where he only ends up hurting his friends more and more and more by trying to erase their pain and gradually, finally, realizes that he must let go of trauma as the only way to move past it. You can't erase it. You have to accept it and move through it. And so was all of this going through your mind while you were getting the tattoo or was it mostly No, there was a needle feeling? jabbing into like a <laughs> yeah. tender part of my arm repeatedly over and over and over I again. I figured. So like, no, fuck no. I've never had a tattoo, so it's not something that I'm not, I wasn't sure if you can escape that by moving into the realm of where your um inspiration came from. I don't escape anything, Christopher. <laughs> you just want to experience I it. I don't know that I've escaped anything in my life. <laughs> Not debt, not decay. <laughs> yeah, well, those not things... Not joy. <laughs> those things are hard to escape. Well, I am so glad that you could get a tattoo and come on the podcast all in one day. It's the beauty of working from home. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that is, a vi- that is something that is going to be very difficult for people to, um, to have taken away from them. If they if they can, it feels like the type of thing where it's like I don't. You're gonna have to kill me. Not in Mayor Adams, New York. The <laughs> oh. Cops will drag you to work. Exactly. Yeah. 
people that people got to rent office space or else. Yeah. Ugh. I don't want to talk about him. <laughs> That's fine. We don't have to do it. Let's uh, let's talk about your novel. I'll talk about the mayor. The beauty of a mayor is that there's no such thing as a good mayor. But there are like, but they can get worse. <laughs> yeah. There's no good ones, but yeah. there's gradations. Of- uh, yeah. I'm going to love Eric Adams for making de Blasio look good. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's hard work, but that's... he did it and he did it so fast. I know he's, it's, it's really a quick turnaround. Yeah. But I should have known, I should have known that New York politics would have a worst nightmare in mind. Yeah, <laughs> I should. Yeah, that was foolish. That was reckless of you. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about your book. Great. That's also reckless. I w- I would love for you to tell our listeners what the book is about, if you can. I'd love to hear it from your words, anyway. Oh, I I mean, like I I do believe that I summed it up pretty pretty simply in the beginning like most books do that thing where they say you know a novel Mm -hmm. uh rather than call my book a novel i called it a love story set in a bad dream about america i feel like that that's a it's as concise a description as i could come up with i think a a larger if we want to like zoom out a little i would say that it is a uh plotless journey through the unrealities of life under late capitalism and what it means to try to build love in that environment. Hmm. I'm, I'm making this up. Like I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can either go very general or very specific. I don't have a middle ground. <laughs> I want to know how you, how you came to be writing a love story set in a bad dream about America. Well, I, I would say that to begin with, as as you having having at one point been my agent for a while, yes. would know I only actually know how to write love stories. However, um, many things in me are, if not, I wouldn't say that they're broken. I think uh, what what my endocrinologist would say is that it is um, abnormal, but but functional, uh, which is how she describes my thyroid, but. I think that it describes most other things that I end up writing as well. Abnormal. Like, yeah, like, like it's, it's not what it should be, but it is working. I think it's funny that you, that you call it plotless that I've seen other people call the book plotless because the pages fly still. Well, (laughs) so like it's, there was for a while, there was a very, there was a, there was a plotted element uh, to it. This book, I worked on it for four years. It, it went through a lot of iterations. It's really, it's a, it was a very difficult and very easy book to write and that it was really easy to write it and was really difficult to figure out what it was supposed to do. And originally it had the structure like, like, like a late period Lynch movie where like there was a, there was one story and then there was some sort of like supernatural disaster. And then there was another story, which was the same story with the same people, but it was a different story with different people, but it was still the same story with the same people mm-hmm. the, like, like lost highway, Mulholland drive and inland empire. But like that was such a stupid conceit for a book <laughs> and it was so hard and it was so abstract and it was just, 
it was a bad idea. Okay. It was a bad idea that I devoted a year and a half of my life to because I was like, this could be fun. And like, I'm sure for someone it would have been fun, but it wasn't fun for me and it wouldn't have been fun for any readers. So I ended up trying to look at it and realizing that the most fun I had with it was the bit, which is still most of the early part of the book, in winter and kind of trying to describe what their life is like. And the original version... Uh, there wasn't a president, Warren Beatty. It was originally called Warren Beatty is a Sad, Sad Man. And it, it, it featured Warren Beatty. And the bit with the bit, the closest bit that still remains from that, there's two parts. One is the part about um, the president, which is like the, the, the president is trapped in the body of a nuclear missile. The president is an international assassin. The president is a world famous hairdresser. Like this was me just like recycling Warren Beatty roles and then just like going going and just like making up new ones like right and then eventually i had to like revise some of it but i kept most of it the same and then there is a part that is what was the end of the summary and the end the original end of what was the first act of the book was sam and eleanor go into a restaurant the restaurant is full up with federal agents the federal agents all pull their guns sam and eleanor gun them all down and get in their car which is like 20 million dollars in the trunk they've been robbing banks they go about and they rob banks they send all the money from the banks they robbed to warren Beatty. warren Beatty uses the money that they robbed from the banks to purchase all of the debt owned by the banks and forgive them mm. and they then become america's most wanted criminals and they are followed by the ghosts of all the cops they kill right and they end up in cleveland and when i would talk to people about the book i would just describe like the last 20 pages yeah of like a hundred and forty of what was like a hundred and twenty page thing, uh-huh. and I hated that. I hated <laughs> that like the only th- that like I was like a whole bunch of really weird stuff happens, and then like this, and like I could describe this one propulsive element, and it made me want to burn out every single thing that resembled a plot in the book. I wanted it to be this thing, not that was formless, but whose intentions would have to be informed by the characters and by the changing of the seasons and by the passing of time. And like seeing what it would be like to have to live with these people and just watch them lead their lives and what that would actually look like. And writing a novel about that began to feel very hard to escape. And Mm. the more I was writing about it, the harder and harder it became to not also try to write about America. And like it's, I mean, I, I wrote probably half the half of what is now the book from the summer of 2020 on. And I would say that the other half of the book was written from 2016 on. There there are parts of this book that felt very much reactive to what was going on that summer of 2020. But it didn't feel tied to that time period because, of course, the things that were going on then also weren't just about 2020. They were about yeah lots you know uh, all of these things are all a long time coming um but it still felt immediate and i guess you know when when this book is so unconventional but it isn't at the same time like there's it, it there's duality throughout you're always like seeing the real world and then it's a little cockeyed but then it snaps back to being yeah that's just normal reality and i I was sort of fascinated by that push and pull and 
that must have just been something you discovered in editing yeah i mean i i i think i feel like you you do you're familiar a little bit with my process and for me uh, i rewriting is an enormous part of everything for me i think that like writing a first draft is is absolute torture only because i i have to do it so that i can fix it like I have to get it down so that I can go back and make it into something that's beautiful. It's very hard to have everything be like beautiful and interesting and compelling all the time. You have to get from one point to another and you have to make your way there. And then once you're there, you have to figure out what you did. And part of the issue with this book is that when you don't have a plot to adhere to, to get you from like point A to B to C, you need... Each, each time that I would go in and I would add something or rework something, I'd have to go back and read the entire thing to make sure that everything in there worked because you have to be able to stick the landing with a book like this. And the only way to make sure that you stick the landing is if you go through and you make sure that each new part is something that relates to or echoes or goes back and is a thread that can be like woven throughout the entire book. It's a pain in the ass <laughs> and it's also like really fun. Do you write with a reader in mind? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but they're not like a person. Like, I remember reading the Just So stories as a kid and feeling that, like, the way these books were written, they were written in a way of a person, like, putting their arm around your shoulder and being like, I have to tell you something. Like, this just happened. It's absolutely crazy. Like, you... Let, let me tell you about it. It's mm -hmm. really important that I do that. And that was, it's it's just such a seductive way to think about telling a story is, is attempting to actually address the reader. I'd be like, uh, I want to tell you something. And I think, I think you're going to want to hear it. Mm. I felt that. I mean, I, you do direct, directly address <laughs> the reader often. And it's, funny to know you and be reading this book and it makes me wonder for folks who don't know you that read this book how it feels for them to be like you know sasha staring back at them from the page and being like i would like to tell you something uh and but i love that direct address i feel like it's not in like fiction like at all uh it's weird that it's kind of lost its way like the direct address used to be a huge part of of fiction for like a very long time. Mm -hmm. It's not like, it's really fun that it can feel new, but it's absolutely <laughs> not like it's this old thing. So I was thinking about your voice and particularly when I was looking at Maria Dalvana Headley's Beowulf's new translation or Emily Wilson's Odyssey, that when they translate ancient texts to now and they do the sort of colloquialisms, it sounds like you. They often sound like they're writing, and I'm reading you, and it's like you're translating ancient text to now, but it's just how you write. Well, like there, there, there are those theories, right, that are like part of what people thought. All all storytelling was was an oral tradition originally, right? And and part of what people thought was a kind of spell was the ability to like write down what people had said so that other people could see it. Mm -hmm. So like the, these are, this is, this is the way 
stories were passed down was as as someone actually just telling you something so it just seems it's the only way for me that makes sense since for me i need to write with a voice and so the voice has to come first and then the further the voice gets the more the world becomes defined and as the world becomes defined who's speaking becomes defined and then they begin to define their world further and then the world becomes populated mm-hmm but for me, it all will always come down and come out of the voice. And the voice has to be something that can speak to a reader. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like you've been cultivating this voice for a long time. Yeah, I think I think showing up to bars in Williamsburg to shout love poems at people, like you really kind of refine how to get people to shut up and listen to you. And I think you really, the thing that I feel is very important as a writer is to understand whenever you're doing a reading that like you owe the audience something to pay attention to. They don't owe you a goddamn thing. Like they should be, if you're not doing something that compels them, they should be talking. They should be moving around. Like you want to, you want to do something that makes them shut up and listen to you. Yeah. Like they, they, I, I, I go to a lot of, (laughs) yeah (laughs) we both do we both do we both do and i feel that too often writers really feel that the audience owes them their attention and not that they owe the audience a thing to pay attention to that's that's my like gripe about about writers (laughs) my my thing about readings is i just feel like sometimes writers get get so into their words that they stop hearing what what i hear just as someone who has performed or been in front of people of like that thief shift that like grumble, that sort of feeling like you're losing them. <laughs> and I can hear it when someone's up and reading, I can hear the sort of chair creak of people who are shifting and oh, no, very yeah. knowledgeable. You can tell when bodies. you lose the room, like yeah. you gotta, you gotta get it back. You gotta figure out how to pivot. You gotta like, you gotta like, you can lose a room at any moment. But I feel like you've brought that onto the page. Like you could lose the I could reader. lose the reader at any moment. I, I feel like I'm I'm very aware. Like grad school was weird. Like people, some people really, really didn't like what I was doing. I was writing a lot of po- prose poems. I had a lot of people like, I had one semester where mostly people just marked where my line break should go. And that was, that was the feedback that I got. Uh, that was fun. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I do feel very aware and I feel like it might not be true anymore, but I did feel a lot like I was always told that I have to be really aware that I could lose my reader at any point because what I was doing was like what unconventional, which is stupid because like we're as we're discussing, like everything that I'm doing exists in conventions and in history. It's just not. I don't know. Uh yeah. So yeah, I, I I worry about that at every point. I want to keep the reader. I want to keep the reader invested. I want to keep the reader interested. I want to give them something that can move them and mm-hmm. like touch them. I don't. I want. I want someone to be able to read this book and feel that we've all read books that have made us feel in some ways like less alone. That have made us feel as though like the world is something that we can look at. A new, like we can look out at the world. This is this is the beauty of art, right? This is what this is the, what 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 the Medici's knew better than anyone is that like art is a way to get people to see the world 
anew and as something greater than it is. Mm. And this is why they paid all those artists to make all those churches because the easiest way to like see God is that way. Mm-hmm. Like if you go in and you see like the, the St. Teresa in ecstasy in the fucking church that he built for his own sculpture, like the marble, like every single bit of it is there to feel like a holy thing. And it feels like a holy thing because someone made it to be that way. And then people go out and they see the world differently. And that feels like they were touched by God. Like this is what the point of art is. Art is there to show you the world in a way that you hadn't thought to look at it before. Mm. So that when you look at it again, it feels just slightly different than it was and more full of possibility. This is what, this is what we hope art does. So if you were going to build a structure for someone to read your novel in, what would it look like? It it would be a, a room that was very slowly filling with light. Ooh. That's nice. Yeah. Morning light? Evening light? What kind of light? Light. Just unbridled light. To a degree that by the end, that's all there would be. Because like, white, white is like, the absence of all color mm-hmm. black is like the presence of all color so the closer you get on that spectrum it just annihilates everything that you can see right that would be that would be that would be the the ideal environment for a reader it would be a room slowly gradually filling with light until light was all there was that's really nice The structure of the novel seems to be able to contain so much with the way that you go through sort of let me tell you a story and then it sort of you can take you can contain any story in those. It made me wonder how you knew when to stop. It isn't so much that I knew when to stop as it was that it became very clear that if I did not stop, I would never stop. It was a book that could have no ending, that it could be written for the rest of my life. I could spend the rest of my life writing this book. And I really didn't want to. Right. So part of it is that having the seasons in it, like having it go from winter to spring to summer to fall and then back to winter, going back to winter... And basically, like, the book seems to start in, like, like late January, early February. Like, the point at which winter is, like, will not let you go. And you realize this won't end. This will never end. This yeah. is just what my life will be like forever. Right. Uh, and so I thought ending, like, in late December, like, around the solstice and, like, when all, like, the holidays are sort of, like, when we've, like, loaded them at the end to try to be, like, here is some light as it leaves us. Uh, that just seemed that seemed like a a place to stop. Mm. Yeah, and I I I did add what is now the last the final page, like the the last bit. Mm-hmm. I added that in rewrites, like after the book was sold. That was something that I had meant to write. It was a scene that I had meant to write and had simply never gotten around to writing it. 
and then I did. A lot of stuff got added. It was, I think when when the book was sold, it was about 50,000 words, and the final version was like 60-some. Wow. So Yeah, we added the, uh, Monika had me add the, she came up with the the constant threat of the uh, the nuclear missile that may or may not be headed towards New York at any moment. And then, so going back and weaving that through just made a way to make the terror a thing that was palpable, but then also, and I think this comes up after the the bombing, which just seemed like something that would be really, I don't, I don't want to say easy to write about, but would fit the structure of the book in terms of being able to like diverge to the history of a place and looking at like where everything could have come from. Um, which was part of the mission of the book is just sort of like trying to stare at it because like you said, like it feels timely, but it's not timely. Like part of reading this was learning about the red summer in 1920, which followed the, the, the giant, the like Spanish flu outbreak, which killed so many people where like anti-mask leagues were popping up all over America being like, don't wear masks Masks restrict our freedom. And like, again, fucking 1920, a mm-hmm. hundred years ago. And soon after that, like in, I want to say it was in Arizona or New Mexico, one of the two, a sheriff rounded up a posse and they went and they, they lynched all the Buffalo soldiers. Like <laughs> after World War One, and this resulted in like like Washington D.C. like a whole section of it got barricaded. It was just nonstop firefights, and I I never knew about any of this. The same way like I didn't know about the the Tulsa bombing until I saw Watchmen. Like mm-hmm. we don't know our history. You can't help but repeat something that you don't know. I think this, like a friend, te- someone texted me this passage, but like, you know, in, 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 in Germany, they have like, you can't hang a Nazi flag. They have monuments everywhere telling you how many people died in America. We still have schools named after people who fought a war for the right to rape, murder and enslave anyone they want. Like we, we don't say that was bad. We're just like, that happened. Mm-hmm. Like. So it, it's very hard to escape all of that. But to go all the way back to what we were talking about before that, uh, it was entirely in an intuitive book. You have to, in a, in a book that is written ideally in an intuitive way. You have to end up intuiting when the moment to stop is. The same way you have to know in a reading when to like cut out and amp up. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I felt like I I could feel your like performers instincts on the page. And I thought that that was really neat. And it made me wonder since you do write poetry as well, what do novels do that poetry can't? They're either very different or they're exactly the same. Hmm. Um, I write a novel the same way that I write a poem. I start with a line and then each thing that follows has to either continue that thought or pivot from that thought. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it stops. Right. And then you have to go back and fix it for years. Yeah. That's, that's how I write a poem and that's how I write a novel. Hmm. 
Uh, but what they do, I mean, poetry is the purest form of abstraction we can get with language. Like poetry is entirely impulse, image, and emotion. The structures that we give it are structures that we have to invent. They're not like, they're not like a sonnet isn't like a naturally occurring thing, right? Like all the structures for po most original structures for poetry were things that we had to create in the same sense of the book that we're going to talk about later. Science becomes this way of defining and inventing structures to define the world. Mm -hmm. But yeah, poetry for me is, is language at its most abstract and a novel is an attempt to create a single world that someone can live inside of. Those two are not unrelated events. No. It's just that a novel is only that thing. Right, right. And a poem is not only that thing. Um, this also might be completely fucking stupid. Like, I'm not, <laughs> no, one, no one should be like, yeah, that's what it is. Like, no, I'm, I'm making that, like, this is, I'm making it's, this up. It's not, this is what it means to me. You're not reading. <laughs> this is what it means to me. You're not reading from an encyclopedia. Yeah, this is, this is, this is what I learned getting a BFA in ceramics. <laughs> um, I, can you talk about how it feels to be published in the current moment, like the publishing moment of, or, or the, the world at large, like here's your book coming out and uh, it's, you know, fighting for eyes against like new Netflix shows or uh, the Batman or whatever. Like, do you think about like wh where you're, where you're coming into in the culture? No, I mean like, you know, I talk about star Wars in my book. You do. I talk about war in my book. I uh I wrote I was I was writing a lot of stuff about the the secret police just like coming and fucking black bagging people and toss them into vans and I I was I was told that it was like by by my very loving partner that uh you know it it was a little unrealistic and then like a week after she gave me that note in Portland, the cops went around fucking black bagging people and tossing them into vans. She's like, shit, like, I guess, yeah. Because I just my, hoped that wasn't real. My editor at one point was like, we should really publish this before more things from your book start happening. Ooh. That's some writing with she, your third she was, eye she open. She was, yeah, yeah, right? Well, you got, like, that's what the fucking book is, man. You're writing with the, like, you're trying to crack the third eye open, like. That's what the angels are there for. Oh, I'd love to talk about the angels. The video game. Bring it. Oh. <laughs> I want someone to make that game so bad, man. Like, if, for the folks that haven't read the book yet, first of all, go read it. Uh, but there's a video game that Sam plays. It is loosely based on the concept behind the film Wings of Desire or Himmel Uber Berlin. Mm -hmm. which I'm saying that wrong, but it is, it's the heavens over Berlin was the, the loose translation of the, of Vim Vendor's movie. Yes. Uh, with the like horrible, I mean, bless his, bless Nick Cage for all life, but city of angels is not <laughs> the same movie. Uh, <laughs> but a weird it, it, try. It's, it's yeah. But anyway, so like the point of the game is that you, you're an angel and you are going around in the world. So one of the buttons is for bringing down, your flaming sword of judgment, God's divine wrath. One of the other buttons is for listening in on the thoughts of 
and intentions and essentially like attuning yourself to the soul of the people around you. Yeah. And then another button is to fly and then another button is to redeem their souls. Hmm. And so I thought that it would be really fun to imagine a game where you are an angel, you're going around, you're attempting to like redeem souls in order to actually make a decision on like who needs redemption, like who needs salvation. You have to be aware of the fact that like the time that you're taking, these are how many people are being condemned to hell. So there's a running ticker of like how many people are beyond redemption because you're deliberating your choices because you're trying to make an informed choice. Uh, So that's going to constantly weigh on you. I, when playing Red Dead Redemption 2, not infrequently confused the button for talk and shoot. So uh, I would shoot at people that I just wanted to talk to, and now the <laughs> herbalist won't ever help me, and I'm screwed because like I can never learn Keep about herbs. People. I I didn't I didn't even kill him. I just shot him in the shoulder, and it's like he'll he'll never speak to me again. And it's like I didn't mean to. That wasn't. I confused the buttons because they're all there. Right. And and like you know, I have a thumb, and like I, yeah. So conveying that seemed important to me. That like you playing a video game is mostly just fucking up over and over again, right? But it it, it took on this extra valence because it's angels. Yeah, it's, it's and not as the angels, like... you can also you can find your own life. You can watch the world around you. Sam finds Eleanor in the game and just kind of like watches her. And as we read along, we realize like what's happening to her is not, it's not like what he's seeing is not exactly a one-to-one, but it's like, it is basically loosely what's going on. Like she's in the office. The room is filling with dogs. Right. And then, and then the room is filling and then the dogs are filling the room with sound and then there's nothing in the room but sound. Um, and so the only way to get a game over in this game, because angels are eternal celestial beings whose geometry defies our judgment or eyes. Um, right. Like there's a part in the Bible where like, you can't look at God, like looking at God would erase your brain. That's why they always say, do not be afraid. Yeah. They say, do not be afraid because they're, who knows? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, that was the beauty. And I think the one thing that's nice about the book coming out now is like, we got all the biblically accurate angel memes. Like yes. they were really like, it was beautiful. Like they started coming out like as, as I sold the book. So I could be like, yeah, I can just keep like a little thing on my Instagram where like you can look at them. Yes. I think, you know, people should go online and, and, and Google biblically accurate angels because that is the angel that I assumed you were playing in the video game. Um, yeah. And I also feel like it would probably like if you ever did sort of like the the bird's eye, you know, the, the third person view rather yeah. than the, yeah. your, your video game would like glitch or something. It would break. <laughs> you can't look at it. Yeah, you can't see it. It you would can't fracture. See who you're it playing. would fracture. It's the same way like in the game when you go and you look at war for too long, the world becomes too much for you to bear. Like you can't, handle that kind of level of horror the an angel in theory can't handle that kind of level of horror because an angel is a divine being and doesn't know what the like this is not there was like the war but like that's i mean i don't know what that was mm-hmm. right we, we just have like what milton said it was right <laughs> right maybe i'm making that up i'm not a scholar again i i have a bfa in ceramics um but the only way to get a game over is to, like Wings of Desire, renounce your angelhood, take up mortality, and then you 
the player live out your own life until you die in the game, and then you can't play it again. There's no way to start over. It's over. So putting a video game in your novel was partially like, someone please make this video game. Absolutely. <laughs> but also, like, there was a time during the novel where I was just playing Red Dead Redemption 2, like, over and over and over again. It's a game that's very easy to get lost in. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a very heartbreaking story, and then you can go and find like the little Nikola Tesla analog and like his his f- goddamn robot and like try to <laughs> rescue it from disaster. But like in order to do that, you have to help him invent the electric chair. So like, ooh, yeah, you gotta like you gotta like go and find dudes that you can like wait like you know. Oh, that's some crazy tit for tat right there. <laughs> yes, it's a great game. That sounds nuts. I've I've never played. It's uh yeah it's uh f- for a western it's unrelentingly wild. With a style as original as yours. I feel like I wondered how it feels to read novels for you, especially ones that are more traditional do you feel a disappointment with fiction that doesn't push this, these boundaries or are are you not like that while you're reading for your own self i mean the thing about consuming art is that you want one of maybe three things to happen you want you want it to be art, which means like it, the top of your head is removed and you touch whatever is beyond. Right. Right. Like that's Something number one. Divine. That's yeah. that's the greatest thing. Beyond that, like I want to be entertained. I want to learn something. And like I want to learn something like I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I've in the same way that like I don't watch a lot of documentaries because I've seen what a documentary can do and I've seen what nonfiction can do. Like in theory when we cease to understand the world is fiction, but like, it's also not mm-hmm. all. Yeah. You want, you, you want to learn something and that you want to learn about you. You, you want to feel as though your mind is expanding by reading it. You want to feel as though there's something about the world that you can understand through this book mm-hmm. that you did not previously understand. Right. And then again, being entertained, it slaps. It's great. More people should try it. Mm hmm. And if a book doesn't do any of those things, I, like I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna read it. And right. I think you can get a decent grasp of that by just going in a bookstore and looking at a book and just like reading parts of it and being like, I want this, I don't want this. I think that there's so much writing that is breathtaking. Like Claire Louise Bennett's got a new novel out, and I can't, I absolutely can't wait to read it. I think it's Checkout Nineteen. Like Pond mm-hmm. was. Like, Pond was breathtaking. Pond changed something in me. It was incredible to read that book that's just like a mind alone in the world grasping at things. Yeah. Which is also like loosely, not necessarily what Speedboat's about, but what, what Pitch Dark is absolutely about. Right. Renata Adler. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, like, I, I couldn't have written this book without Speedboat. I couldn't have written this book without Pond. I couldn't have written this book without Patrick Rednick's Yorapana. I'm probably saying his name wrong, and I'm very sorry for that, but it's an incredible book. I couldn't have written anything without reading Ika Kurniawan, whose name I'm also absolutely butchering, probably. Uh, Beauty is a Wound that New Directions put out. 
mm. which is one of the wildest novels. Like it just goes. Every time you meet a character, you learn their entire backstory up until the moment that you meet them, and then you're just right back into the story. And like every single time you meet someone, you have to learn their entire story, and then you're back into the story. So the entire thing is just tangents that always return and then fold themselves back in over and over and over again. And this is the kind of structure. It's beautiful. And so many books do these things. I think you just have to look at them a little differently to be able to see it. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. All books are weird. You brought me uh, Benjamin Labatut which I might be messing up. It's a, he's a Chilean he author. I messed anything up just there. He wrote, When We Cease to Understand the World. And will you tell the listeners what this book is? It is loosely five stories related almost entirely to science uh, that contain increasingly fictional elements as you move through them. Every single one of them is roughly about the sheer cosmic horror of what pure physics and mathematics are, which is an attempt to look at the chaos of reality and attempt to understand its structure. Like I, if I had learned that that's what like math was, I would have fucking loved math. Yes. For me, math, like math growing up in public education under No Child Left Behind, which is a horrible bullshit thing that was visited upon us. Pennsylvania once tried to tie teachers after No Child Left Behind, tried to tie teachers salaries to test performance. It would be great if we tied police salaries to their performance, considering that. What, like property crime rates are solved at 20%, rapes are solved at 30%, homicides are solved like nationwide at 51%. Like if teachers, if teachers had those test scores, they'd be out of a job. They'd be fired. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not saying that being a cop isn't hard. I'm just saying that like having a gun and being allowed to shoot whoever the fuck you want is like, it seems kind of easy. <laughs> um, but anyway... Yes, we were talking about when we cease to understand the world, which loosely happens to me, I think, every day. But yes, it's interesting to me looking at the book like the the so the the final piece, the night gardener is pure fiction. The first piece, Prussian blue, contains, according to the author, one fictional paragraph. And then everything else. Everything else is real. But it is for me the wildest story in that it is the one whose structure is entirely built on intuitive association, right? Like it begins with Goering taking a cyanide capsule. It zooms out to like show you the scene where all of the Nazi brass are gathered and they're being given cyanide capsules by a children's choir. But it's the children who are too young to hold weapons because all the ones who actually know how to sing who are old enough to have been taught how to sing have arms big enough to hold guns. So they're like defending them from the invaders. Every single member of the Nazi brass is being given these cyanide capsules. We slowly zoom out to like talk about how all of the bricks at like Dachau and the, because of Zyklon B, which contains cyanide as its active element are all stained blue, the same blue as Prussian blue because cyanide is derived from Prussian blue. We go and we learn like the history of the Prussian blue plane that then goes into the 
the like bizarre green that he concocted that murdered thousands of French children and that they painted Napoleon's rooms in exile, which made which like probably brought his death and killed all of the servants in the home. This then goes into the the Jewish German from the World War One who created chlorine gas, but also is the guy who allowed nitrogen to be synthesized out of thin air, which like ended starvation in in like countries around the world but when the nazis took power he had to flee but he couldn't go to england or any other country because they wouldn't take him mm-hmm. because he invented chlorine gas and killed everyone like it is a wild and he free does this asso- in, like three pages by the way <laughs> like it's like very few like, it's the it's it's moves. it's not the shortest one night gardener is the shortest one no i but, know but i mean he, but like after that, they get longer and longer, but this one is frenetic in its pacing. It is wild in its associations, and it's the one that is all true. As we get further and further, like the pacing of the of the title piece, when we see to understand the world, which is about Schrodinger and Heisenberg and their attempts to like define the subatomic world as being a thing that is either definable or undefinable, which was essentially their central batter, which Heisenberg eventually synthesized as being like, it is definable until like it is only definable when you look at it. When you don't look at it, it is undefinable. Right. The act of looking at it changes the thing because the world again is something that we actually cannot understand. We can observe it, but by observing it, we can't understand it. And and the magic of this to me was I understood it. Yes. You <laughs> like I knew what he was talking about. Throughout, I never felt like I was being left behind in my very soft grasp of mathematics. I mean, it's, it is sad that it's all about men, but it is yes. all about these people who want to try to touch God and the way attempting to touch God breaks them. Yes. Right? Like that's, I mean, that's especially the, um, what was it, the the heart of the heart. The third one, which begins with the the Japanese mathematician who who like bases everything off of, that was my favorite. One. Oh my god! I mean that that was heartbreaking. Yeah, that there's this there's a part in that where he realizes that he'll never be understood, and he takes everything that he's discovered. He removes it from the internet. He tries to remove it from the internet and says like, "Never talk to me about it." This Which is exist. what his idol did. He yeah. he he wrote and was like, "Don't ever publish anything I've done. It can only be used for evil. If you try to touch this version of math, if you try to like understand the world in this way, it will it will cause nothing but pain." Which then also, in what is probably what is possibly a purely fictional passage, and I feel very comfortable saying this because he says in the afterward like. It becomes more fictional. The final part of the title piece, the Schrodinger and Heisenberg one, Heisenberg like stumbles into a bar. Schrodinger's equation has like caused everyone to believe that his matrices, which he discovered in a fever, um, as all great discoveries are made, when you can't define the world around you, when everything is just like sweat and pain and dreams. 
he stumbles into this bar. This guy starts talking to him about a flood in Mississippi and ranting at him in a way that like seems to deeply understand and connect to who Heisenberg is as a person. He pours some kind of drug into his beer and forces Heisenberg to drink it. Heisenberg escapes. He wanders into a forest and he sees a vision, which we don't understand until the end, of like bodies reaching at him, turning black, and there's a dead baby. And then... At the end of it, the Nazis ask him if you can make an atomic bomb. He says, no, absolutely not. No one can make an atomic bomb. And then Hiroshima happens and he loses his mind. Right. Well, I mean, Oppenheimer himself appears in this book as like a horrible specter. Every time his name (laughs) appears on the page, I'm like, no, (laughs) no. He's like this villain that I, anytime he, he was around, I just was like, don't use this math. Don't use this math for for your dark deeds. I've never read a book like this before, which is saying something to me because I feel like most books, you feel like, oh, this fits in this realm. This is one of these. And there's nothing like that for there, this. There, so I actually, uh, for me, this this really feels very akin to, to Patrick Rednick's Yerapana. Right. It really, which is an associative history of the 20th century, which he defines as beginning with World War I. Mm. And I mean, that book opens with him talking about who the tallest people in World War I were and how long all of their corpses would be if you stack it. And then going through all of the other nationalities in World War I and what their corpses would have amounted to if you stacked all of them head to toe one to one and then it starts talking about the ways about about the invention of chemical warfare like why they call they called it mustard gas because it's stung the nose like mustard they talk about where it hit they talk about like shell shock they go and they talk about how everyone believed that the war would be over by christmas but also no one believed the war would be over by christmas but at the same time five pages at the same time that book felt felt statistically driven it yes it it was that book was also associative in the same way that Pru- it, it was very much akin to Prussian Blue. Yes. In that it was historically driven, but the history was an associative history. And as you continue in When We Cease to Understand the World, you cease to understand the world. Right. Because the more we attempt to define a thing, the harder it is to actually understand what it is we're defining, which is like, I think, the central posit right. of like quantum physics and like where the what, all what, these men's minds were yeah, going. Yeah, what 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 Jonathan Hickman in his in his shield comic referred to as the quiet math, like the thing that is like that which is capable of solving for eternity can only break the mind. Mm. I mean that uh, there's even within that there's that part in um in the book where the, the the mathematician is like finding associative reasons between the numbers between geometry and that's what drives him crazy is that like it's not it's not numbers as we understand them i kind of was feeling akin to how i felt as a teenager watching beautiful mind where yeah. you felt like there was someone who understands who can who can pr- take a math equation and describe how pigeons move Right, like that is a that's not an understanding that I have, 
but it's an understanding that I felt like Benjamin Labatut has. Well, the that's the thing about like it's the thing that they don't that like I at least I felt like I didn't learn in school was that math and physics at their highest form, like poetry, are pure abstraction. Right. Right. Here's here's you know the the equation f- for a circle. So you can look at the equation and some people see a circle. I saw an equation. I feel like you probably saw an equation too. Uh, I so I had this thing where like if someone could explain to me what a formula was actually for, I could understand the formula and I could do the problem. If they couldn't tell me like what its purpose was, I don't know how to memorize a goddamn thing. Right. I can't do it. So I, my, my math tests were either an F or an A. It was a wild time for me. I mean, I just feel like writing about math is better than math. In the same way... <laughs> writing about math is better than math for those of us who can't do math. I mean, this book... <laughs> I'm, I, I know it that makes, you love watching baseball. but Oh, God, I love it. Baseball is just... But fucking, I love... Baseball is math. I love reading about baseball i hate reading about so baseball. much more than I watching hate it hate it and in the same way i love reading about math more than i like reading like doing math i want to walk back my statement that i hate reading about baseball i love non-fictions about accounts of baseball i almost unrelentingly despise fictional accounts of baseball because fictional accounts of baseball mostly rely on the fact that nostalgia is a disease well, whereas baseball itself is math in its most chaotic form. Ooh, there's a pull quote for something. Someone baseball <laughs> for the players' union. Dear baseball, dear we have, dear we dear have the a quote players' for you. union, dear the players' union. Well, fuck Major League Baseball. They're a horrible organization. Yeah. Yeah, as anyone as anyone could see during the lockout, ownership is just a bunch of scum sucking capitalist fuckheads. I'm sorry for cussing so much. It's okay, it's all right. Well, I apologize to LitHub. I apologize to the the listeners. Don't apologize. <laughs> for, don't apologize anything to LitHub at all, ever. <laughs> Sasha, I could talk to you forever, but we should probably move on to recommendations. Great. I'm going to recommend taking baths. Hell yeah. I've been taking... Get some some lavender Epsom salts. Taking baths. Actually, um... Light I love candle. lavender Epsom salts. I just bought myself a bath shelf. It's it's really helped oh in the world. God. And I I also really like this company Way. They have these things called or we O U A I like Way like the French. Um, and they're called chill pills. Really nice. If you break them in half, you could have one at the beginning of the bath and one like to send you into the end of it. I I don't I don't know why I never what. I haven't been taking baths until recently, but it is the best way to like create your own little universe. And I have a hue light in my bathtub, bat in our bathroom, so I have light moving around. And 
these great sort of bath salt things that are all, you know, buy your own, like buy whatever one you think looks cool. There's a million of them out there. But I have just found it to be an incredible thing. So I'm going to recommend that. What do you recommend? As someone who generally recommends baths, I I need a minute. (laughs) Okay, while you're thinking, I'm also going to recommend, I mean, seriously, I don't know how our discussion of when we cease to understand the world wouldn't cause you to go buy it but i'm i'm gonna just stand for it for a second here and just say like i haven't read a book like this i I've, i haven't ever read a book like this i mean i'm already year upon it i don't think that i think that there are, might be similar in some fashion but i think that this is a very different feeling thing to me and i also highly highly recommend your new novel everyone should read my book everyone they be, needs to they, read they should read my book so that i can I can hit the threshold of making royalties off my book. Yes. So go and buy Be Here to Love Me at yeah. the End of the World. Please, okay. dear God, give me money. I recommend giving me money. Yeah. Recommend um, Sasha Fletcher. Yeah, I just recommend give myself. Some I recommend giving me money. I, uh, all right, shit, you did baths. So I'm I'm going to recommend uh, Loving with an Open Heart. I don't I, I don't really know how to do it, but like it's a thing to strive towards to be able to actually attempt to look at like how often do I wall myself off? I wall myself off every time I get scared. I get scared every goddamn day. Um it's terrifying to be alive in the world. It the it like it shouldn't be, but it is. Maybe it should be. There's the fact that like the the horror and beauty of money is that you can never actually have enough of it. There is no quantity at which like you could label enough, right? So, right. So, being alive is in its own way a terrifying thing. So, I, I, I would absolutely recommend like trying to find a way to find love in the world, because it's, it's either bleak or it's not. It's a great recommendation. Also, do do really take a bath. It's a beautiful thing. It really is, folks. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and Sasha. Sasha, thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. To the world, I really appreciate every time you leave me an iTunes review. I haven't gotten a new one since October last year. So if you're like, hmm, maybe it's time for me to leave a review, it like super is. Also, if you wanted to give me money, patreon.com slash smdb. That's where you give me money for the show. And I really appreciate it. Go buy Sasha's book, Be Here to Love Me at the End of the World. It's out from Melville House. You can have it at your home so quickly based on... Or you could buy it from a local spot. I mean, all of your local bookstores are going to be carrying it or they'll be pleased to be asked about it. And thanks for hanging out. Sasha, thanks again. I'm just happy to be here.